Hi, and welcome. This episode of Pause, Purpose, Possibility will drop on the day after the annual holiday honoring the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. And some three months into the horrific war between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East, not to mention the ongoing war in Ukraine and deepening political divisions in this country. King managed to see beyond violence and hatred. His words and his life heralded the possibility of a different kind of world, a more just and life-giving way of being. In my far-reaching conversation this week with my guest, Jeremy Schraffenberger, we talk about, among other things, how words make worlds, and about whether it's possible to do our work, to live our lives, in ways that people will stop killing each other. We also talk about the Beatles, music as a means of gathering community, and about the malleability of memory in being human. Jeremy Schraffenberger is the editor of North American Review, the oldest magazine in the country dating back to 1815, and a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa. In addition to writing, he says he strives for mediocrity when playing piano in a local band called The Favorites. I'm Chris Johnson. Welcome to Pause, Purpose, Possibility. My friend and colleague Jeremy Schraffenberger, thank you so much for being part of this new adventure. Welcome. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, it's really an honor to be here, and it's good to reconnect with you. You know, it's been a few years, it so it's nice to hear your voice again. Nice to um, have access to your wisdom, and I also just want to say it's nice to know that you're um, you're doing something like this podcast, which is sharing what you have to offer your wisdom, your your gift to the world. And I'm happy just to be oh. part of that part of that gift. I, I love podcasts and I've never been on one. So I've listened to plenty. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try to live up to uh, my own podcast standards, but yeah, thanks for doing this. And thanks of course, for having me on to, to have what I hope is going to be a beautiful conversation. Oh, that's also so kind. Thank you. I feel like we can just stop the recording right there and I will have gotten <laughs> my, my fill for the day. So thank you. Um, you mentioned that it has been a few years. We have known each other for a bit more than a few years. We first encountered each other at, uh, and you can say more about your own experience of it, uh, at University of Northern Iowa, where I was invited to do some work for a time. Uh, and it has been a while since then. So um, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners in whatever ways you wish, um, both uh, well, you may remember from our work together in the academy that one of the things we, I think, wove in was uh, Parker Palmer's thinking around the distinction between ego story and soul story. Both mm -hmm. are important. There's, or David Brooks talks about um, the resume story and the eulogy story, something like mm -hmm. that. So um, tell us whatever story you would like about who you are and what yeah, makes that's you great. So if I gave my resume story, I'd sit up straight and say, I'm a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa, um, editor of the North American Review, all the all the stats of yes, my life. Okay. Um, I, but I've lived here, I've been a professor here since 2008, and I think we must have met around 2016, 17. Something like that. 
at one of the leadership academies that you that you had led with uh, when Jim Wolpart was the provost here. And that was a pivotal time uh, in my life. And so I, you know, I, I credit you with a lot of um, what have turned out to be, I think, good decisions in my life. You know, I think we all, you know, we have jobs, we have careers, and we get, we get good at them. You know, we, we, <laughs> we know what we're doing. And when I met you, uh, I knew what I was doing. I was perfectly competent. I could get stuff done. You know, I knew how to work, serve on a committee. I knew how to, um, I knew how to write, knew how to edit, knew how to teach, knew how to do all the things that I'm required to do. Uh, but then you get to a point where you're like, you're, you're competent. Maybe you're even excellent at those things. Uh, but then you realize that you're maybe not bringing your whole self to uh-huh. that career or to your job or to your work. Like we spend so much time doing things for uh, like for our institutions that we work at our jobs whatever if it's a in corporate world wherever we are we spend so much time doing things that may not um be about who we are and so what you did um and it it's a simple and beautiful thing you just reminded us all as academics as people who were working at this university that we are whole people that we are not defined by our our jobs um and so yes that's one story i have to say um you also you know i think that you were very good about reminding us that the people um especially in the academy identify as intellectuals often uh so you know i identified i still identify as an intellectual to a degree i, I identify as an artist as well Mm-hmm. Um, but as intellectuals, as academics, and that identity that we have, um, we are so often not allowed to be emotional. Mm-hmm. And that space that you created um, for us was a sacred space. And I, I don't know how many people were in it, maybe 20 people in that first cohort, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere around there. Um, you created a space for 20 high-achieving intellectuals uh, to be able to cry what a gift that is. My God, uh, what a gift to be vulnerable. And, you know, I also um, chalk it up to our mutual friend, Jim Wolpart's um, leadership to be able to provide for that space to happen. So you were invited in and you were the, the catalyst. Um, you know, I think, I think Jim every day. So that has kind of sparked for me. Um, it's not like I was I was a cold, distant, unemotional person before, <laughs> but it just reminded me that I could bring more of that into spaces that had usually felt that they were off limits. Like in my classroom, mm-hmm. you know, I mm-hmm. I have the privilege to teach creative writing often, uh-huh. which which corresponds in ways uh, with the those lessons that you were uh, that you brought to me corresponds in a lot of ways in creative writing. So. I can talk a lot about craft. I can talk a lot about how you render a vivid image. I can talk a lot about aesthetics, but then there's something else about when you're writing expressively and writing about yourself, life writing, when you're writing about memory, um, writing about trauma. Um, how can that writing also function to heal? How can writing also function to Help us tell us, and this is part of what your podcast, I think, is about exploring your true self. How can what you write be a way to discover your true self, not to express your true self? Like, because you may not know yet exactly what that Mm -hmm. true self means. Mm -hmm. How can you write to discover it 
and to, to not realize, oh, I didn't know that about myself. And creative writing, so if I'm writing, if I'm teaching a different kind of course, I, th those kinds of lessons are a little more difficult to, to, to make fit into the larger curriculum, right? But I have the privilege now to be able to do that much more explicitly um, than, I, than I might have otherwise, what, because I can talk about how do you craft a sonnet. Let's talk about the Volta or the rhyme scheme. Those are technical aspects of poetry, which I still find important and beautiful and lovely um, and edifying. Like you, you feel really great when you craft a, this, you know, beautifully constructed artwork, artwork artifact, this piece of thing, you, this thing that you made that now it's crafted. But then you also have to ask, what is it? What is it expressing? What is it doing for me as an artist, and then therefore um, as a person? Um, I, so I do credit a lot of that shift, even if it's a shift and not a complete radical overhaul, a shift toward bringing emotion into the class, providing that space. You know, trying to make the classroom a sacred space, the way that you made that that mm -hmm. um, leadership academy, that institute, um, a sacred space for us. So thank you, Chris. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that it has uh, landed and taken root and borne fruit in the kinds of ways you're describing. When you think of yourself at the point in your life where you are or it, people across the lifespan, what's your own diagnosis about why it is that folks uh, are, aren't in touch with their true self? Or aren't uh, aren't able to access mm. heart as well as head, yep. so on and so on. What what are some of the barriers? So yeah, and here here's the thing. I have no wisdom really to offer. I think we can find wisdom together in conversation. Yeah. I'll defer to you. I, I, this is just supposition on my on my part. I, so thinking about this, remember I remember a conversation we had, and I think that we were. I may have taken you a little aback because I said um, I don't believe in essences. Okay, and, and the point of this was my being a little contrary because that's just the kind of <laughs> academic guy I yep, am. Yep, yep, uh, yep. When we're talking about oh, the true self, the core of the self, oh, the essence yes. of the okay. self, the soul, and I and I so I I, yeah. I wanted to fight back because that's my instinct is always to see like okay, how is that not true? And I fought against the idea of there even being such a thing as essence because huh, and, yeah. I, and I and I and I I'll seed a little bit of ground in this, but I do want to return to this idea of what I, I think the, thinking back on that moment, what I was trying to get at, which was that our true self is not stable. Our true yeah, self is right. always evolving. Yes. You know, there might be an inner thing that we identify with, but we change all the time. Uh -huh. And I think the search for a true self can, we can be stymied and frustrated for God's sake. We can be frustrated because we want to find our true self. And, and I think, you know, especially when we're coming of age in our, you know, late teens, early twenties, we think we're going to quote, find ourselves <laughs> when really, you know, that you're there the whole time. Uh, and, and we, we change based on context. We change based on experience that, that true self is, I think we have to honor it by allowing it to be different as well. Yes, right. Thank and we're and we're changed by so you recently relocated to Minneapolis yeah. and you shared that it was during a pretty traumatic time in the city, right? George um, Floyd and pandemic and all that. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of that. You can't tell me that that hasn't had some effect on your true self. Oh, of course. 
and it and it doesn't have to be traumatic it can be good too i'm not but but you carry i think we carry that with us but it's not carrying it to the side i think it's carrying it with ourself that is it becomes part of ourself um and so i guess maybe leading with head instead of heart um is kind of pretending that we do have that single stable self that's mm-hmm. just right behind our eyes. That's where our identity is. That's where our self is. And, and so you can control it with your head. You can, mm-hmm. you can make decisions. Whereas the heart, you can't quite control it as well, <laughs> if at all. Uh, and the heart I think is more uh, easily moved. It's more easily uh, it more easily shifts and changes. So maybe we we lead with the head because it's what we can control, and we feel safety in that ability to just um, feel like we have our hands on the reins. When really, I think we have to admit that most of the time we don't mm-hmm. <laughs> have we don't control so many things in our lives, and that you know I feel like that's very scary. It's a scary proposition to to think that. You don't control so much that that has an effect on you that that you're subject to. Um, yeah, so th- that's just a supposition. I don't know if that if that um, I don't know where how you respond to this idea of the self being changeable. Oh yes, I think it. I think you're spot on with that. I think that we. My kids remind me that I'm fond of saying things like we are always all the ages we have ever been. Mm, so. Yeah. So in that respect, uh, maybe there's some sense of consistency there. And yet also, in being all the ages we've ever been, mm-hmm. uh, of course, my three and my 13 and my 33 and 53-year-old selves are both, I hope, recognizable and also very, very different. So yeah. yes, there's a malleability, a plasticity, uh uh, a resilience, I hope, uh, yeah. built into that, uh, a- along with something that I can have a relationship with. Maybe that's the thing is, that's, that's occurring thing. to me is that yes, there is, it, it isn't an essence of an unchangeable yes. essence of selfhood, but that there's, it's an ongoing conversation that I have with myself and that myself, whatever that is, is always having with yeah. the people and forces and realities uh, around me. This is beautiful. And it, it is exactly what I say to my writing students when we are talking about creative nonfiction. I think it applies to other writing too, but it usually fits with lessons in creative nonfiction uh, more easily. Uh-huh. So recently, my um, my colleagues and I at the North American Review, uh, we wrote a, a creative writing textbook together. Oh, wow. Uh, so my colleague Grant Tracy wrote a, a, cha- a whole section, nine chapters on fiction. My colleague Rachel wrote, um, Rachel Morgan wrote nine chapters on poetry. And I wrote nine chapters on creative nonfiction. Uh-huh. And so this textbook, and by the way, this textbook is an open access. It's completely free oh, and open nice. to anyone to to download. It's um, hosted at um, a platform called Manifold at the University of Minnesota. Uh, so it's an ebook, very, and it's l- laid out really it's a lovely layout, um, but we did it as one way to sort of promote or to share our ideas um, as editors uh, of a magazine, a literary magazine. 
uh, but also to to use in our classrooms, for, you know, to have a free textbook yeah. for our students. So it's a service to our students. Uh, yeah. They don't have to pay 50, 90 <laughs> bucks for a textbook. Wow. And it also just really captures what we think about writing. So I say all that to to mention creative nonfiction, because what you were saying is exactly what I tell my students when we're talking about memoir, when we're talking about writing from memory, I tell them, listen, you have not had remarkable lives, have you? <laughs> you have nothing to share. You have nothing that's important, right? And they're like, yeah, nothing really dramatic has happened to me. And they want to maybe go to, I want to write about the death of my grandmother. And of course, oh. that's a moment where yeah. I want to write about the time we were in a car wreck. It's like, okay, that's a moment that you're like, that's the most dramatic thing that's ever happened to me. And I say, listen, Flannery O'Connor said that if you survive childhood, you have enough material to last the rest of your life. Huh. Like nothing has to happen for you to write uh, important nonfiction because the point of memoir is not what happened. It's your relationship to it, yeah. your relationship to the memory of what happened. It's the meaning that it ends up taking on because you because you remember it. It's part of the larger story that you're telling. It doesn't have to be a big major event in your life to matter. The most mundane things matter deeply because because it's you because it's yours. Uh, and and this and and I think that this I hope <laughs> it inspires them to think of themselves as um, artists or somebody who some people who are worthy to call themselves artists or aspiring artists, mm -hmm. because most of them would say like, you know, I just like to dabble or I'm just going to play. It's like, okay, but take yourself seriously now because you do have something that's important to share. Um, it also just reminds me too of um, memory itself is something, and this is, goes back to the, this idea of the true essence of the of the self or the true self. Um, I, I'm fascinated constantly by this idea that when you remember something, you are changing it. You remember oh, yeah. it, you bring it forward, you handle it a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and you re-remember it, and then it has changed ever so subtly. Every time you bring it back, it changes, it changes, it changes. It changes because you have changed. And because what you notice or what you're most interested in has changed. Um, there was a story I tell sometimes in my classes when you're remembering, you're remembering, and you have these memories that are just like your go-to memories, mm -hmm. right? They're the ones that are like, that's my childhood, my early memories. I remember that mm -hmm. vividly. And then they change eventually. And maybe because I'm in my 40s now, uh, <laughs> I can think back and like I have more of a perspective of a father because I have two children, two daughters, than a, as a as a son or a child or a young adult, you know, quote, finding myself. Um, but I remember things from childhood now that are completely different. One of the one of the stories is so my father um, was uh, a big fan of the Beatles. And I subsequently became a big fan of the Beatles. Like oh, he sure. had all the albums and I would take the albums and sit by myself and listen to them over and over and over again. And I think I, I think I did from the early age move through the chronology in the same way the Beatles style changed, you know, uh -huh. from the love me do <laughs> and then the weirdness of Sergeant Pepper and then the sort of, you know, then you get to, to let it be, you know, their, their style changed. And I think I also, as a child, as I grew, I grew into liking one album over the other. So uh, one of my early memories 
um, was was sitting with my dad and him saying, that's John, that's uh-huh. Paul, like telling us, telling me which voice was whose, right? So here's the song. Oh, you hear that voice? That's Paul. Or that's George. He was naming the, the, the singers at the time, right? So I remember that as like, oh, cool. My dad knows them well enough to be able to tell me who's who. And I learned about the, the Beatles as characters. And that was just a memory. It was a nice little moment of being with my dad. And I was crawling all over him too. You know, I remember sitting on the floor and I'm just like a little kind of toddlerish kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that stuck with me because a lot of my other memories of my father have to do with playing sports. You know, so this was a this was a cultural uh, memory as opposed to I mean, sports is culture, but as opposed to this other kind of relationship that mostly defined my relationship with my father. But here's this other thing that's an outlier that took on greater significance. So I thought I understood that memory until uh, I happened to be doing some research. Um, I don't remember exactly the context, but speaking of sports, I was doing some research about the day John Lennon died. And it was on uh, Monday night because Howard Cosell, who uh, was Monday night football host at the time, announced John Lennon's death on Monday night football. Wow. So this like little moment enters into my, into my mind. And then I re-remember, I was like, okay, Monday night football, my dad who worked um, six days a week at a grocery store for 40 plus years, his day off always was Tuesday. Uh-huh. So that memory was my dad playing records with me on a Tuesday. He was not just listening to music with me. He was grieving Yes, the death of John Lennon. And that has completely changed. And so it didn't even occur to me to wonder, why am I listening to this with my dad? It was just there. Yeah. But that memory now is utterly different. It's radically different. Even though the physical sensations of that memory are the same, the auditory memory are still memories are the same. It, it means something different. So I took that out. I handled it. I kept handling it. I brought it back, re, 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 remembering it. And now it is like, it, it may as well be a different memory because it means something very, very different. Thanks for sharing that. I'm hearing myself wonder so many different things. Let's see if I can pull a thread out here. So you've, you've talked so beautifully about, uh, well, memory, conversation, relationship, meaning with great passion. And I would say, uh, a compelling force, but let me just put a kind of a blunt question to you, uh, in the, time in history and American culture in which we live, there's all kinds of political and economic cultural skepticism about everything you've just talked about. Mm, yeah. So, so why does it matter? <laughs> why does it matter that there is still such a thing as English being taught in colleges? Uh, you know that I'm asking it mm-hmm. as somebody who completely already is sold, right? So you don't have <laughs> right. to convince me necessarily, but yeah. uh, today, what is your sense of why, why, why does meaning matter? Why does the teaching of English matter? Why does yeah. mining memory matter? 
why does grieving the death of John Lennon or George Floyd or whoever it might be yeah. matter? There's a pile wow. of questions for you. Yeah. What, what does it matter? So I'm not dismissing the idea that we do have to have some vocational utilitarian skills-based education at universities. I'm just going to insert in parentheses, very quick interruption. Um, The the way you're using that word vocational is giving me shivers. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) As you, you know, my, my sense uh, and folks listening to the podcast over time will, will be able to gather pretty quickly that uh, I use the word in the sense of identity, meaning purpose, calling, Calling, rather than professional preparation, uh, utilitarian, um, so on and so on. So with that caveat, continue. (laughs) No, I'm glad you pointed that out because, I mean, that's actually an interesting word to pivot on. How do we move from vocational to vocational? Ah, good. Thanks. Right. I mean, because I do think now what has happened is we've erred on the side of um, providing people access to move up in society to make a living yeah. right to to provide for yourself so education was already going to be there you have a general education that provides this foundational knowledge that can be maybe you get some wisdom from there but then you can go up into your majors and get more specific professionalized preparation uh, and the sp- specific pr- preparation what i would call maybe lowercase vocational <laughs> right the, mm-hmm. the utilitarian vocational mm-hmm. um has taken over i think Skills has taken over knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so how do we pivot from the lowercase v vocational to the what the capital V vocational, which is more about calling, more about depth of meaning, um, more about your whole self yes. rather than just your professional working self. Uh, so that's that's actually for me the pivot that I am living in right now. And we all live within in this pivot. We want to work toward the capital V vocational. But but it's hard. I mean, you're it's like it's like uh, swimming against the stream. Um, and yeah, I don't know exactly. Um, it, it maybe it's maybe it's um, I don't want to say pointless, but maybe it's not exactly going to have the effects we hope it does if we're fighting for that. Um, but I like to believe that the struggle is worth it anyway to try to represent the heart, try to represent capital V vocational anyhow. Again, there's so much in to unpack in what you've been saying. A couple phrases are bubbling to mind, though, from other folks. One is uh, Krista Tippett, uh, the, oh, yeah. the brainchild and host of On Being on, on public radio. She has said or written somewhere, words make worlds. Mm. And then the second phrase that's occurring to me is one that we maybe encountered back during our Leadership Academy days together from uh, the author and teacher, Mary Rose O'Reilly, who tells a story in one of her books, I think it's The Peaceable Classroom, tells early on in the book a story about her being in grad school in the late 60s, so Vietnam War. And one of her grad uh, colloquium seminar instructors launched into the class at the very beginning uh, of the semester, the question, is it possible to teach English so that people will stop killing each other? So words make worlds. And then that great question, is it possible to teach English or accounting or computer science or, you know, fill in the blank uh, in so that people will stop killing each other. Uh, And so I'm, I'm, 
those two phrases are mm-hmm. emerging for me and I'm working toward a question. Thanks for your patience. Given that your one of your many gifts is with words, mm-hmm. poetry, creative nonfiction, editing, North American Review, so on. Uh, what are the worlds that your words, that you hope that your words help to make? And is it possible for you, for any of us, to do our work, teaching English or otherwise, so that people will stop killing each other? We're recording this conversation about a month into a horrific latest outbreak of war in Israel and Palestine between Israel and Hamas. And uh, not that long ago, there was another mass shooting. Uh, this one out in Maine, mm-hmm. 18 people dead. So we live we live in a world where people are killing each other all the time. Yeah. Uh, there's so much brokenness and pain and anguish and hatred and division and so on. So what is in that world, mm-hmm. in this world, what is the power of words? What is what world is it that you hope that your words will make? And is it possible for any of us to do our work in ways that people will stop killing each other? That, it's a profound question and it should haunt us, right? I mean, it should, and there's no, you, you can't answer it definitively, but you have to keep it in mind or else you forget the purpose of, mm. well, the purpose of being in education to begin with and the purpose of being an artist. Like, so I, yeah, um, yeah. I think art and I, and I will say words um, are, I'll say art instead of words yeah, um, okay. simply because I think it, I think it can encompass any number of diff- of media. Um, but I think art can't directly make people stop killing each other um but art can make us see the world anew and by which i mean i don't mean like uh see it the way we saw it as children what i mean is see it as truly strange and truly awesome and awful Mm -hmm. as well and art is not um so therefore when i teach art or when i try to write my own work that i would consider art it's always toward that end of, of, you know, making a rift in the surface of the world to see something of the real behind it. And you can never see it whole and you can never, um, you never hold on to it either. It's always, I think, ephemeral that art has this, this unique characteristic of being able to let us see the world as it actually is. So in other words, to cut through the myths, and all the metaphors that we live by, all the cliches, all the political stances and ideologies. So as a whole, like, let's say I taught a class and the whole world was there. I would hope mm. if students were engaging deeply, yeah, I could make those students stop killing each other. <laughs> mm. um, but of course, it's really a matter of, um, you know, so many other larger political forces that have um, that have kind of pushed art aside uh, in favor of other pleasures and other interests but i do think that that art itself when when done if if you engage in art you yourself have to become a better person i do i think that 
Um, that's not to say that you are in, you're not an inherently moral person because you're a writer, but when you're writing or when you are creating some art, that's when you're your best self. Hmm. I think that I, I, and I don't think that you can create truly um, transcendent art or like true art. If you're not tapping into something good, something that, that recognizes hmm. the sacred, that recognizes the sacred of the other in the mm -hmm. same way that you might recognize the interest of the self. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, it's, you know, Martin Buber's I and thou relationship. I think creating art, engaging in art allows us to have that um, I and thou relationship much more easily. And I don't think you kill thous. I don't think you kill right, a, right. a thou. It, you kill it's, yes. you know, so you don't cut down a tree if you recognize it as a thou, uh, but you do, if you see it as lumber, it's an it. As Robert Frost said, um, you could see a tree and educate it into boards. Uh, <laughs> if that's, if that's the, oh. the regard that you have of the world, you, it's very easy to kill people in things and uh. ecosystems because you're not engaged in that I thou relationship. And, and then the I thou relationship, I think is people would probably think it's a little a little flaky a little hippie a little idealistic but it's not untrue for god's sake it's really not mm. and it's a simple it's a simple practice it's it's hard it's impossible but it's a simple practice to regard the world and others as thou's mm. and then therefore treat them with um the same regard you would have um for people i mean whole people not it's people with interest and people with um, within our lives, people who, who deserve moral considerability. But yeah, that question, Chris, is I, I appreciate you bringing it up because it does haunt us. Like what we do in the university, what we do, uh, what we're doing in this podcast. The reason we're having this conversation, Chris, is because you facilitate conversations and offer wisdom to help people um, to find their true selves. Yes. But also to deal with what, what you're describing in the world around us, whether it's Israel and Hamas or Ukraine mm -hmm. or the shooting in Lewiston, wherever and whenever, that's what you're doing here and now with this podcast too. So why are we doing it? To remind us, bring it back to the context that, that we're living within. Uh, thank you for saying that. I, I'm really moved by that. Thank you. All good things need to come to an end, and I'm not going to cut us off yet, but as <laughs> as a way to begin to turn the corner, yeah. Um, since you mentioned not just words, but art and artistry more broadly, I know that you are a musician as well as a, oh, yeah. as a poet and so on, and you, you talked about how your dad was best buddies with the Beatles yeah. uh, and that they were frequent guests in your home. What in your own life and work and world making have you noticed is the relationship between music and your words? Mm, yeah. How do they well, feed and illuminate each other? That's great. The, the reason I play music, first of all, there's just the joy of, of learning something. So a few years back, um, I decided to teach myself to play piano. I took advantage of the fact that I had to go home. Unfortunately, my uncle had passed away uh -huh. and my 
my parents in their house had my grandfather's pianos, the tiny little console piano. And my parents don't play music. No one ever played the piano. They just banged on the keys. And I was home for this uh, funeral and uh, I was in a van. So I, I decided I can take this piano with me back to Iowa. So this is about nine, 10 hours away. So I brought this piano that had been my grandfather's um, for many years back to Iowa. And then I got um, a PDA, which is professional development assignment, our version at UNI of a sabbatical. And I decided that on that sabbatical for that semester, when I wouldn't have to teach, I had another project I was working on. I would teach myself to play piano. And I did. And I was really bad. <laughs> but I kept playing it because the joy of learning was was there. And it was also one of the few things I was doing that was not professional, right? It wasn't, I wasn't doing it for my career. It was not a line on my CV. <laughs> it was not, I wasn't getting paid. Um, but, you know, I, I learned enough that uh, I started playing music with people and we're in a band and we play locally here. So now we do sometimes get paid a little amount. Um, but here's, here's the, uh, the larger point. I play music uh, because I like, um, I like throwing parties. I like people coming together. I like uh, making a space for people to um, to come together and just be with each other and have fun. I, I think of that same work as I do as an editor of a magazine. I consider the magazine itself as kind of a party that I'm inviting people to. Uh, and so if I think of it as that, then I'm hosting. I'm not really an editor. I'm a host. I'm, I'm using... <laughs> my skills of hospitality more than editing in some ways. I want to make this space for others. And that's the same exact thing I love with music. So I like the community that it creates. Yeah. Um, so that's for me, that's the connection. I think that's why I still do it. So I promised we were turning the corner, but it's a really long, slow corner. So okay. Thanks for doing with me. <laughs> uh, you have mentioned a few times North American review. Tell us about that. And uh, why you care about it. Why should any of us oh, yeah. know about it or care? Yeah. North American Review. Go for well, it. Well, one thing you should really know about North American Review is that you, Chris, have published in the North American <laughs> Review. Yeah, your kind um, invitation. Thank yes, you. Yes, it was great. Um, and it was really about making things matter. Like how, to, like the thing you wrote was about how do you make what we do matter? How do we make lives matter? Uh, how do we find meaning in the life? So that mission of yours has been evident. I mean, it has been, I think, probably for your whole professional life, making things matter. Um, but you also presented at a conference we did in 2019 to celebrate the 50 years that we've been at this university. Um, and I think that was about, it was about finding courage to create in a troubled world. Yes, yes. We're right. still, we're still <laughs> in a troubled world, Chris. Yeah. It ha you didn't solve the problem, no, Chris. What man. Oh, <laughs> man. Uh, so the North American Review, the spiel of the North American Review is, it's the oldest literary magazine in the United States. It was founded in 1815 in Incredible. Boston. Incredible. So it is, and that's really great. And I love it because of its history. And I say that's our, our normal spiel because that's supposed to impress you, Chris. It does. Thank you. Yes. It's the oldest magazine, more than 200 years. Uh, and it does. It really does. I can say we've published more than the work of more than 12 presidents. We've published, um, I don't know, X number of Nobel laureates, X number of Pulitzer Prize winners, National Book Award winners. And we have. And it is and me and Chris Johnson. For God's sake. <laughs> Subscribe today. Um, but but the uh, and I, you know, I think of it as a party, like I said, but it's also yeah. this tradition. So it is the oldest magazine and it was founded. 
uh, at the very end of the War of 1812, which you might consider the final little skirmish of the Revolutionary War, right? So if you think about it in that way, whereas the revolution was about declaring our our political independence, the, the magazine I think of, and it was explicitly discussed in such a way that it was really our cultural independence. So here's a magazine that's worthy of this grand new nation that we're going to build. And I'm part of that tradition now. So recently, however, during our rebrand in 2019, and you you participated in that conference, um, as I said, that marked that occasion, um, we um, crafted a new mission. So our mission was to be open. Uh, it was to be eclectic. And, and this is really the most important part. Our mission was also to be restorative. And I, and I mean that word restorative in the, um, the way it's often used with restorative justice, you know, where you can right yeah. wrongs. In this case, it's really looking at history differently. So if we have 200 years plus of back pages of the North American Review, yeah. I can point out to you all the impressive people, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Walt Whitman, et cetera. Um, but there are also some pretty terrible things <laughs> that uh, appeared in the, that magazine. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm working on a project now. I have a fellowship at the Houghton library this year, and I'm researching um, the early, the attitudes of the early editors concerning slavery wow. and abolition and colonization. Uh, and so I found, and so all of these editors, early editors were at Harvard. It was a Harvard publication for 60 plus years before it moved to New York city. And then before it moved to Iowa So I've discovered a lot of really interesting things in manuscripts and letters and journals that reveal subtle little clues about what the editors thought about slavery that weren't necessarily in the published pages of the magazine. Um, So that's the kind of project now I think that is our charge. When we take a magazine of this kind, we inherit the tradition, we inherit the, the history, but it's our job not to just reproduce the history and the stories we want to think are true. But it's to ask the questions of what stories haven't been told. Um, what were the untold stories and what were the unheard stories? What were the distortions of history? How do, what do we make of the past now? So that rebrand really has transformed my relationship to the magazine as a, um, as a larger project of understanding history, American history differently and, and with a restorative aim in mind. Two more questions. I love it. Uh, first is give us a spiel now or tell us a story about your own book that oh, yeah. either is just coming out or is about to come out. It will be, I think it'll come out in February. So when this, oh, when great. this drops, when this yeah. drops, it'll be on its way. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so the, it's a chat book of poems. So it's a short book of poems um, that um, I've written. I've written over the course of three or four years and it, it's called American Sad um, because I didn't want to bury the lead. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you the the poems are are strange, somewhat dreamlike, somewhat. I used to call them nightmare poems, oh which isn't to say they're scary, but the the project of the poems was really to do something I hadn't done in my previous books, which I would describe as very much uh, very crafted and wrought, where I would be very concerned about you know, rhythm and, and syllable counts. And I wanted to make a, this, this beautiful shaped object. And with this book, I decided um, to, to 
to go with my unconscious self instead of the conscious controlling writer Mm -hmm. who wants to make everything perfect. Mm -hmm. And so rather than having an idea that I was trying to communicate and express, I allowed, I was, I was almost chasing myself, uh, chasing my unconscious self around trying to figure out what it is that I thought about something. So that takes it into surreal moments. It takes it into nightmarish moments. It takes it into memory. Um, And it also, I feel like takes us into painful traumatic spaces, but also some places that feel, I don't know, that a little bit redemptive. So it is a kind of experiment uh, for me as a writer, and it's really felt kind of um, renewing. Mm. And that may springboard or not into the last question, yes. uh, which is one that I'm hoping that we'll develop a practice of asking pretty much all our guests. And that is to riff a little bit on the title of the podcast, Pause, Purpose, Possibility. What do those words or that combination of words mean to you? Yeah. So I think a pause really, um, and we were just talking about poetry and what poetry can do, um, poetry is, you know, contemporary poetry now is written in the lyrical mode. And, that, and it's different for me from um, from fiction and nonfiction prose forms, which usually use more narrative or dramatic modes. Whereas the lyrical, what it does as a mode is it, it pays attention to the sound of words, especially, <laughs> and therefore also, and, and can also linger. So it tends to uh, slow, often slow time down. It can have that effect. So it's not exactly like poetry is a way to pause from the world and find your inner peaceful self. That's not exactly the kind of pause I mean. What I mean is that um, it actually changes your relationship to time. Uh-huh. And I think that that there's a kind of pause. There's a kind of pause in writing poetry. And there's a kind of pause also, I think, in, in reading poetry. You can write a poem where time does not elapse, where there is no duration. And it could be a pages long poem, but you're in that moment that never really quite moves into real time, biological time or technological time. So for me, I guess I would say poetry is a way to pause, but not in that way that you might think, not in that way where you're escaping, rather you're, you're, you're dwelling maybe a little bit more insistently in something that is true and real. And in you, you are the one who uh, has created that, that moment. So that's one that's one little riff deepening instead of escaping yes yeah 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 a pause that deepens a pause that that gives you permission not to move on i'm so grateful thank you thank you yep thank you too As always, we invite you to continue to reflect on what you've heard in today's episode by way of some questions to ponder and a practice to take with you. First, the questions. How does your life, or how would you like your life, to contribute to Dr. King's legacy? And if it's true that words make worlds, What kind of world do you want your words, your way of showing up in your daily life, to bring about? And for a practice this time, I'm going to suggest a variation on what some folks do at the turn of the new year, 
which is to choose for yourself a word of the year, one that you maybe post on your bathroom mirror or on your refrigerator door to remind you to be aware of it at work in your life. The variation I'll suggest is to simply do that more often, maybe a new word every month or even weekly, and keep track from week to week or month to month so that by the end of the year, you can notice what kind of vocabulary emerges for you and in you over time. On behalf of or for the sake of what kind of story are you living your life? I'm Chris Johnson, deeply grateful for who you are in the world and for your having been with us for another episode of Pause, Purpose, Possibility. Please join us again next week.